somewhere between waking and sleeping, on our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world, and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 21 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by Seymour Jacklin. Visit Borders of Sleep for more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by me, Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from Distant City by David Viterbo and is available from magnitune.com. This podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you are ready to journey with us, then let's begin. Moving in Mysterious Ways by Seymour Jacklin It was all the bishop's fault. He started it with all his theological speculation about what might lie beyond the chessboard, and from the moment he had planted the idea in the minds of his congregation, things started to go wrong. The Queen, who was accustomed to the feeling that she could go wherever she wanted, whenever she wanted, didn't like the suggestion that there might be somewhere else that she didn't know about. The King began to fear that if everyone was preoccupied with fanciful ideas about what may or may not be beyond the last line of squares, they might lose interest in fighting his battles and contending for the small space that they did have. The pawns huddled and whispered as usual, keeping to themselves as they always did and generally getting in the way of everyone else. But the subject of their mutterings and whisperings turned from the general disgruntlement about their lot and the debate about whether to form a union to the possibility of somehow escaping to another life beyond the borders. He said there may be many chessboards out there just like ours, said one pawn to another, as they stood shoulder to shoulder on the Queen's Bishop's fourth and the Queen's third squares. Aye, other boards with better conditions, said his companion. Did he? I didn't hear him say that, said the first pawn. What the Bishop had said in his last sermon was that there was almost certainly something out there beyond their knowledge. And he did say that he could only describe what lay beyond as something vaguely grasped in his imagination, perhaps another larger chessboard of which this present board was but a square, which implied another 63 chessboards, somehow, and he then speculated as to whether this chessboard was itself part of an even greater one, and so on ad infinitum. The knight took the idea in his stride, accustomed as he was to thinking around corners. But he didn't really see how it made any difference to him right now, so he didn't lose any sleep over the question. And the rook? Well, he sat quietly in the corner wearing a dark and inscrutable expression. 
The thought had crossed his mind once before that this might not be all there was, but he had lately become distracted trying to make a mathematical calculation of how many possible positions could occur on the chessboard, and he always grumbled when he got moved out to occupy some file or other because it took him away from his studies. In the event, it was the knight who was the first to discover, by accident, that there was indeed another world beyond the board, and that it did not consist of a monotonous infinity of chessboards as the bishop had rather gloomily predicted, but of forests and rivers and green meadows and mountains. The happy accident of his escape happened on the fourth row of the king's rook's file, when the knight was hard up against the edge of the board and feeling a little trapped as he generally did under such arrangements. In his heightened state of fear, he was startled by a very loud noise all of a sudden and his primal reflexes, untempered by any learned sense of the rules of the game, sprang him right off the board. To this day, no one has been able to say where the noise came from, whether on or off the board, and just two pieces witnessed the event, the aforementioned bishop, who had started the trouble, and one of the pawns that he was peering round from the relative safety of a fianchetto. The bishop broke his customary silence with the foot soldiers and asked the pawn if he'd seen the knight taken. No, I believe he just jumped with fright and disappeared, my right reverend lord, said the pawn. I insist that at the first opportunity you go and see what happened on that square, said the bishop, and report back to me. The pawn was happy to do so, as he had been the knight's pawn after all, but it wasn't without the unfortunate sacrifice of his brother on the rook's file that he was able eventually to make his way to the place from which the knight had disappeared. In the meantime, the knight found himself deposited in the branches of an oak tree, the significance of which was lost on him, since even though he was himself made from oak, he wouldn't be able to tell an oak from an ash or any other tree. With a bit of kicking and writhing, he managed to free himself from the supporting branches and tumble to the ground. Now you will find it hard to appreciate what violence nature does to the senses of a chess piece, introducing all at once a variety of colours besides black and white and offering virtually no straight lines with which to coordinate one's movements. The knight struggled to right himself and move in the best approximation of a straight line that he could manage, two steps forward and one to the right, two more forward and one to the left. Anyone watching would have concluded that he was staggeringly drunk, as not only did he have an erratic way of moving, but he also wore a dazed expression as he tried to take in the richly disorientating nature of his surroundings. Without really being sure of what to do next, he was making his way towards the straightest thing he could see in the landscape, a ruler of dusty road that thinned away to the horizon, making a perfect perpendicular with the edge of sight. Back on the board, the knight's pawn tried to peer over the edge where the knight had disappeared, but it kept making him feel so dizzy and perplexed that he was beginning to try and work out how to explain to the bishop that there was really nothing there and the knight had simply disappeared into thin air. 
Just as he pondered these things, he saw the looming threat of the opponent's rook who was rumbling towards him from the far end of the board. Well, for this pawn, being in great danger all of a sudden, and having, by degrees, become open to the possibility that there might be somewhere else to go besides awaiting his fate at the hands of another chess piece, the stage was set for a miracle. In the next instant, without even thinking about what he could or couldn't do, he'd skipped forwards and sideways to the right as if he were taking an enemy and found himself standing on a little bridge over a stream along a dusty road that thinned away to the horizon and made a perfect perpendicular with the edge of sight. He was suddenly overwhelmed with loneliness and therefore extremely grateful to see the halting figure of the knight coming up the road towards him. By now the knight had discovered that he was quite capable of moving in a straight line if he told himself very firmly not to skip sideways on every third step. In fact, he was concentrating so thoroughly on inhibiting his habitual use of himself that he didn't see the pawn until he was almost upon him. And when he did notice the little footman standing there with tears of loneliness and relief in his eyes, he skeltered off in alarm and nearly tumbled off the bridge. Careful, prawn, he exclaimed. What are you doing here? The pawn was used to being addressed as prawn by the knights, who always called them prawns, although it was never determined if this was from ignorance or just a wearisome joke. I believe I followed you here, sir, drawled the prawn. I suppose we answered the bishop's question, though. How are we going to tell him? I don't know. They had no need to worry about that, for the knight and the pawn decided that they had no better option but to continue along the road to see where it led, and as they passed a wayside shrine, they met the aforementioned bishop, standing in a state of awestruck rapture, his mitre trembling with emotion as he looked about him. Oh, this must be heaven, he said. More extraordinary than I could have ever imagined. And so the bishop joined them on the road, and kept cutting off his companions by veering off on the diagonal to the right or the left, until the knight explained to the bishop how he could inhibit this tendency to zigzag by telling himself not to. As they got used to this new way of moving along, the bishop explained to the other two that as soon as he had seen the pawn disappear in the same manner as the knight, he had concluded that they must have found a way to go beyond the board, and that he had taken the next opportunity to dash to the edge and had not permitted himself to stop when he got there. In this way, he came to be the third chess piece to achieve this happy state of freedom. Happily they went along together, until they saw what they thought was a rook barring the way. It turned out that they had in fact come to the gates of a city, where a couple of burly soldiers challenged them and asked what their business was. The other two left the bishop to do the talking, as the metaphysical nature of their expedition was best explained by a man of the cloth. We are strangers here who have been gloriously liberated from a dark land of black and white squares, he began. You'd better come with us, said the soldiers, and escorted them to the king's palace. Now there was a sight for monochromed eyes. They were marched through hallways, hanging with tapestries of scarlet and gold. 
Under soaring arches with filigreed pillars, and through gardens with joyous fountains, all colour, all sound, and with every line of formality ending sooner or later in a dazzling chaos that utterly delighted the chess pieces. But when they reached the king's chamber of court, they saw something all too familiar, for the floor, from the door, up to his throne, was chequered with black and white squares. "'Who have we here?' demanded the king, with a note of confidence and authority, unlike any that the chess piece's own king had commanded. "'A bishop, a knight, and a foot soldier, your highness,' said one of their escorts. "'They came to the gate with some sort of strange story about a land of black and white.' The king settled back in his throne and stroked his beard, which is the prerogative of kings who are lost for words. The rest of his court, his own queen, his own bishops and knights, were ranged respectfully on either side of him and staring at the strangers. "'Are you ambassadors?' he asked. "'More like refugees, sire,' said the knight. "'Or the gloriously ascended,' said the bishop." and the pawn kept silence, as he had been trained to do in the presence of his superiors. "'From where?' exclaimed the king. So the bishop explained the nature of the place from which they had come, and the king asked many intelligent questions, and had his scribe make a detailed note of the answers. They were very suddenly interrupted by a long moan from one side of the king's throne. Everyone turned to see what it was. The king's own archbishop and personal chaplain had sunk to his knees and was reaching out his hands in prayer towards the visitors. "'You have come!' he gasped. "'You have come from the celestial city!' And turning his face to the king, he said, "'Sire, that they speak of all that I have longed for and spoken of with not half their eloquence, a pure, untainted place, formed by unseen hands, come down out of heaven. Then turning back to the bishop, the knight, and the pawn, he begged them, Take me there, please. Show me how I may come to this place. Well, said the bishop, who I have omitted to mention up to this point, was, like the knight, made from oak. You have a pattern of it here in this room upon the floor. One need only move in the determined manner to experience what it is like, and I'm sure that will be enough. Show me, pleaded the archbishop. So the oaken bishop took him by the hand and led him up and down the diagonals upon the chequered floor of the court. And the archbishop faithfully placed his feet as he was directed, as if learning a new dance and the oak bishop instructed him to move in no other way but to step upon the white squares. And the archbishop seemed to be enjoying himself so much that one of the younger knights stepped forward and asked to be shown the dance as well, whereupon he was duly instructed by the knight to move so, with a step and a step and a hop to the side. A soldier, too, one of those who had escorted the party from the gates came alongside the pawn and asked if there were any steps that he should learn. And so, each of them danced in their determined way until, caught up in the moment and watching their feet so carefully, they forgot that they had ever moved in any other way. And as they danced, the bishop, the knight and the pawn stood back and let them have the floor. 
Faster and faster they went, shuffling and hopping with glee, until, all of a sudden, they disappeared. They were there, and then no longer. And just at that moment, a bishop, a knight, and a soldier found their whole world suddenly contracted into 64 squares and their bodies thrown into the heat of battle upon a chessboard. Well, said the king, turning to his visitors, it seems that three vacancies have arisen in my court for a bishop, a knight, and a foot soldier. You couldn't have come at a better time.